1: Tuned in to Sci Fi Fidelity, the podcast that brings you monthly science fiction television discussions and interviews. Remember to follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US, and we are at Sci Fi Fidelity. This
2: is episode 12 for December of 2016. My name is Mike. And I'm Dave. And in this edition of Sci Fi Fidelity, we'll be talking about androids as our main discussion topic. And the shows we'll be discussing include The Librarians, which is off to a rousing start in its third season on TNT. And a much-awaited Man in the High Castle, which has its second season dropping on Amazon this week.
1: Yeah, it's hard to believe. There's a lot of stuff going on in December, so we could have chosen a lot of different things. And in fact, I think in the last podcast, I did mention we were going to be talking about Incorporated on Sci-Fi, But we're going to save that, hopefully, for an interview in January. We'll see if that pans out. But The Man in the High Castle was just too good to pass up. It's just so good building on the first season, so I can't wait to talk about that one. But we also have, as our interview segment, a discussion with Eric McCormack and Brad Wright of Travelers. Now, you may recognize Eric McCormack's name from his lead role in Will & Grace. (laughs) He was Will, of course. And Brad Wright is the creator behind the Stargate franchise. So these are some big names and was very happy to talk to them about Travelers, which is a Canadian import, and we'll be talking about that as well in January. So lots of uh, preview material coming up for the podcast uh, to come.
2: And I think it's pretty fair to say that Travelers has become our new favorite show that a lot of people probably don't even know exists. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So yeah, let me just mention,
1: because this is normally when I say the spoiler time codes, But because Man in the High Castle hasn't come out yet, it's going to be by nature, spoiler free, unless you haven't seen season one. So it is going to be a little bit spoilery for season one. But, you know, the statute of limitations should have expired by now for that because that was last Thanksgiving. So should be pretty safe.
2: Yeah, I was going to ask you, is the hiatus longer than it appears to me to be? I mean, it just seems like I just watched season one of Man in the High Castle, and yet here we are again. Yeah, and yet it's been over a year. Wow. Isn't that weird? It does seem a lot shorter.
1: And then, of course, the Librarians discussion, which we'll start off with. Librarians is in Season 3, so that one's going to be a little bit spoilery. Uh, And if you don't watch the Librarians, that's another reason. I know some people use the time codes to skip over topics they're not necessarily interested in. But the Travelers one also, because it's not coming out here in the States until December 23rd, that one's going to be spoiler-free as well. Unless you're a Canadian, (laughs) because, you know, they're almost finished with it. It started back in October. So Netflix picked it up from Showcase in Canada. So it's going to be a lively discussion. But if you do need to skip over anything because of spoilers or just because of your level of interest in the various topics, here are the time codes for today's discussions.
3: Androids.
0: 342.
3: The Librarians.
0: 1904.
3: The Man in the High Castle.
0: 3109 Traveler's Interview 4423
1: Okay, and if you're here, you're listening to our main topic of discussion, which I think also by nature is fairly spoiler-free, and that's androids. Because androids have become, gosh, almost as big as time travel in terms of being addressed in science fiction these days.
2: Yeah. And, you know, you have to go way back. And, and of course, the word Android wasn't used here, but I don't know if you're familiar with the 1922 play R.U.R. by Carol Kapek, in which the word robot was used for the first time. And, and it's the traditional story that that we have to this day of the created rebelling against its creator. But... The other thing, the R-U-R, Rossum's universal robot, Rossum, of course, the Rossum Corporation in Joss Whedon's dollhouse. Yeah, so that was a nice little reference back to the original robots. But I think
1: the main distinction that we make these days, and probably going back a ways as well, is that androids, by the root word andro, which means man, like anthropology, for example— That means a robot that looks like a person. So I think the big part of why this is such a great thing to explore is that for some reason, once the robot looks like a person, everything starts to get conflicted in the way we perceive them, even if they're just like robots. And I think that's an interesting psychological thing to explore.
2: Right. Now, on the one hand, you could argue that a lot of what science fiction, television science fiction writers are trying to do is examine androids as they mirror the human condition. But what do we mean by the human condition? I mean, is it simply the search for self, the who am I, where do I fit in in this universe?
1: Well, it depends on what era you're talking about. And we're going to talk about some various examples from television of androids, mostly main character androids, but not, not all. Some of them are supporting characters, but some of them that are from the 90s, let's say, or certainly not from the last decade, tend to be more exploring the emotional human condition. And then as you get closer and closer to modern times, you start to see more and more the idea of sentience, consciousness, life, and being treated like a living being rather than just having emotions.
2: Right. And the fundamental question seems to be, what does it take to be considered in the same vein as a human being, if everything else is equal.
1: Right. And it's a very gray area. Maybe not so much from the programming standpoint, but from the how realistic it is to the outside observer, even if the android themselves are not motivated to become human. Although in the in most cases from the ones we're talking about, there is a motivation imposed upon the mechanical being to want to become more human, to want to become sentient or conscious. So that's maybe something we impose upon the story ourselves, but it's an interesting idea to explore.
2: And maybe also what they were developed for in the first place, yeah. whether it's as a helper right, or as an integral part of the team. I mean, you take somebody like Data from Star Tech, the next generation, at the end of the day, he still was an android- more than he was a human being. Yeah, well, he was one of the examples that I mentioned
1: where it really seemed to be mostly about exploring human emotion. He was like the Vulcan character for The Next Generation, and probably that's what he was designed to be, an uh, analog for Spock since they were reinventing the series. So that initial exploration tends to be where it gets started, and then it starts to get more complex as more and more television shows introduced it.
2: Right. And we'll talk a bit more about her in a few minutes. But Ada from Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., where Dr. Daniel Radcliffe realizes he needs to tweak her emotions and her reactions to things as she goes along in her development. Did they really do that with Data? Not really. And
1: and that's the thing. And I think Ada is a great example of a minor character, certainly brand new to Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., But they've really done something very different with it. So you really can take different angles. And I think a big part of why this is a topic for us to discuss is, of course, the wildly popular HBO show, Westworld, which had androids at its core. And the idea of consciousness and certainly a mirror for the human condition in that one. So we definitely have different levels to come in at it for. But can a machine have a soul? And is that something that's important beyond sentience like we're getting into the spiritual angle too and that's certainly true for westworld so lots of different levels
2: right and on the one hand i was about to ask you well michael why don't you go ahead and tell us what a soul actually is (laughs) (laughs) but i won't put you on the spot there but but you know you mentioned the spiritual aspect of it dare i even say religious aspect of it and then of course we have to go to battlestar galactica and the cylons who interestingly enough felt that they did have a soul and they, in their religion, were monotheistic, whereas the human race had, I don't know if evolved is the right word or devolved, but <laughs> into a polytheistic religious stance. So. That idea of a sentient machine gets explored in Battlestar Galactica better than I think anywhere else I've seen. Well, yeah, especially from the spiritual
1: standpoint. I don't think it had been done before that, but it was also great to see that they could do that in Westworld, especially since it really reflects upon the humans themselves as to, you know, the death of God because of course, to them, God is a person in the form of Dr. Ford. And so it becomes a huge metaphor for humans and their God. So you can really kind of draw some parallels and see what our state is like and and the state of freedom. Are we actually free? Do we make our own choices? Do we have free will as humans? And we can see it much more clearly when we put it from the perspective of an android with its creator being right before it.
2: And one that still touches me to this day is Roy Batty in
1: Blade Runner. Oh, yeah. That's going back a ways. Now, of course, that's not television, but you can't ignore that one, especially given the confusion that people had over who was human and who wasn't.
2: Right. Now, the other thing that we see is the use of Android as a protector or a guardian. And one of my personal favorites is... The Terminator, Sarah Connor Chronicles, and Cameron, who is there precisely to protect John Connor.
1: Right. And this is a very different thing when you get at it from the television standpoint, because Sarah Connor Chronicles treated the T-1000 or the t Eights or whatever as very different than James Cameron did in the movies. Because, you know, Skynet even was robot takeover. There was no Android element there. And the Terminators themselves were very robotic. I mean, there was a small element of protectiveness that bordered on emotional attachment, but no greater explored than it was with Cameron in Sarah Connor Chronicles. So she really became more and more human as the series went on.
2: Right. And John's reaction to her became more... And more human on human than human on machine, (laughs) because I think he even developed a little crush on her as the series went on.
1: Well, there was always the question whether or not she, because she was based on an actual human profile, whether she could feel emotions for real. Because I think there were a couple of times when she was very convincing (laughs) as he was getting ready to turn her off a couple of times. So, So you can't argue with that. And then. One minor example that you and I explored probably more than most was the short-lived CBS series Extant, which certainly had some narrative problems, especially trying to explore maybe too many science fiction issues at the same time. But one of them was The Life of the Android, with the humanic, is what they called them in that show, Ethan, and his quest to become human by living human experiences. In fact, he was programmed by living as a child and going through life just like a human would. And I think that was a unique way to do it in that show, that the only way a machine is going to be able to be human is if they live as one.
2: Right, and the other interesting thing there is that I think it's fair to say he was developed to replace the child that they lost. Right. Which is kind of weird in and of itself, and then you you realize all the other issues that that raises because certainly their friends and neighbors know what Ethan is. And that's also
1: something that always is in the back of my mind whenever I watch a show that has androids in it. How much of this is the perception of the humans? In fact, in Westworld, a lot of people get accused of anthropomorphizing the androids when they're supposed to just be tools to enjoy sexually and to take out your violent tendencies on rather than getting emotionally attached to them, even though they're supposed to be realistic, they're really not. And of course that's not necessarily the case, but we always have to wonder how much of it is how the humans look at the androids. And that's certainly true in the AMC show humans as well.
2: Well, right. You mentioned Westworld. And and again, as you mentioned at the top of the discussion, how can you not mention Westworld? But Dolores and Maeve, who kind of break away from that mindset that they are just simply tools of pleasure for the guests. And, you know, however it happens, whether it's Dr. Ford that deliberately set things in motion, that this sequence of events would take place and allow them to develop, which I guess you have to say is true, right? You know, I definitely think
1: so. And that's why it's such a good transition, actually, into humans, which I said was from AMC. It's actually a British import from Channel 4, but AMC airs it here here in the States. And interestingly, the synths, as they're called in that show, are very similar in their origins to the hosts in Westworld, in that they are created by someone who has died, a creator who has passed away and before they died inserted some secret programming in them that could cause them to come alive and experience human emotion and there was even, I think, in season one of Humans, a colleague of that departed genius scientist that was having to come to that realization himself, just like Dr. Ford did in Westworld. So I think there's some really interesting parallels there, especially since both Humans and Westworld have the androids being treated as objects, servants, and people who are there to serve the whims of humanity.
2: You're talking about William Hurt's character. William Hurt, yeah, exactly. Right, right. right. In humans, though, and of course, the the glimpse we own, we get is through the one family, and Anita is there as a servant, babysitter, what have you, nanny. Of course, we know what eventually she comes to be used for by the father, which Yikes. opens up a <laughs> other set, set of problems. So we don't really necessarily know. Well, well I guess we do know that there, there are scents that are used for more pleasure-centered. Uh, well, yeah. Niska herself started out
1: as a prostitute. And, of course, she is the one that rebels. It's interesting that Niska is kind of very similar to Maeve in Westworld. I'm just now coming to this realization that there are plenty of parallels between those two shows. Kind of cool.
2: Yeah. Well, and then the one we haven't mentioned, I don't want to say I have a love-hate relationship. Hate's a bit too strong. (laughs) But that is, of course, Android in a show that, obviously, we both really are getting into, and that's Dark Matter. Yeah.
1: It doesn't have a name, just The Android played by Zoe Palmer. And yeah, exactly. The delivery that she has is what we both have problems with because she's a little bit like Scarecrow from The Wizard of Oz. Because, you know, I feel like she should be more like Ada from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. in the way she delivers her lines. But she's going through an awakening in Dark Matter as well through Seasons 1 and 2 where she's finding some anomalous programming that turns out to be more human characteristics.
2: Right. And I've said many times, probably more than you'd care to hear me say, but I'll say it again. It's just that in this day and age of androids in science fiction, and certainly in the time period in which dark matter takes place, there's no reason for her to talk like that. Exactly. In fact, (laughs) we know she has the upgrade chip.
1: Yeah, she has the ability to speak more naturally. You get the impression, though, that sometimes androids have to be made with a flaw of some kind so that people can recognize them as such. I mean, I'm thinking of the green eyes, the emerald green eyes in humans for the synths. I mean, of course they put on
2: contact lenses, but (laughs) I just go with the hairstyle on the (laughs) Android.
1: So there are definitely ways. I remember even in the Westworld movie that HBO's Westworld is based on, you could recognize the androids from their hands. They had little flawed joints, I believe on their hands. So I think that's a cool thing. Even Data had sort of golden skin. So (laughs) I think if we ever do end up making androids that walk amongst us, that there does have to be something like that. (laughs) Otherwise, we're going to fall prey to the same thing that the characters do in these TV shows.
2: All right. But I think at its core, what makes this such a wonderful concept to to really examine and explore is the fact that we 're probably not that far away from this I mean exactly you know, decades perhaps, but really in the big picture that's not that far, and we've got to come to terms with how we 're going to view these yeah, the Turing test is about to be passed yes, so
1: <laughs> all right well yeah, and if you want to read more, I do have an article that i've revised a couple times to add people to it on den of geek we 're going to link to it in the show notes, which is at scififidelity.libsyn.com, and it will be also in the article at denofgeek.com. So if you want some further reading, reading on Androids and some further examples that we didn't mention here, please feel free to read that, because that was a lot of fun to write. But uh show that we are enjoying, uh, Dave, I believe you are also podcasting about it, and that's The Librarians on TNT.
2: Yes, I am with Wayne at Sci-Fi TV Rewatch, and it's a wonderful show. There seems to be, and I don't know if it's the Harry Potter phenomenon, but the world of magic is back in force. And I know you uh, wrote reviews for Den of Geek about the magicians. Right. It's
1: in that same vein. I didn't think of that. But I also think of Warehouse 13 when I think of the librarians because of the warehouse full of artifacts similar to that.
2: Right. And and of course, there is that connection. Now, The Librarians is based on a series of movies. There were three of them that appeared two years apart, and they star Noah Wiley from Falling Skies. And we'll get to that in a second. But one of the things I love, number one is this show airs at eight o'clock on Sunday nights. It is the only show I watch live. I can't even remember the last show I've watched that was live because everything's on too late for me. Exactly. We're early risers, folks. Yes, we are. Well, me more so than you. But <laughs> but as I said, Noah Wiley stars as Flynn Carson, who I think we would have to say is the number one librarian. He certainly is the star of the three films. Well, isn't it implied in the movies that there can only be
1: one librarian and then they just kind of toy with that idea with the TV show?
2: Well, that's a, in fact what happened until the library, which is a sentient being in and of itself, decided that it was going to send out invitations to three more librarians. So at this point we have four. I think Flynn is still maybe more esteemed than the other three, but essentially we have four librarians at this point. So we have Rebecca Romaine who plays Colonel Eve Baird, guardian of the librarians. Which is something that also didn't get in the movie, the guardian idea.
1: It seems like there have been guardians in the past. We didn't see them in the movies, though, and it's great to see that she has a very distinct role from the other librarians.
2: Well, we kind of see Sonia Walger. I don't know if she's actually a guardian. I guess she's not really a guardian, but... I wish they had done that retroactively. (laughs) Yeah. Now, Lindy Booth plays one of the three young librarians, and you may have seen her in Odyssey 5, which is a show that I got into maybe six months ago. I mean, it's been off the air for some time now. But she's you know much younger than she is in the librarians, pretty cool. She plays Cassandra Killian, who is a brilliant mathematician who has a brain tumor that's slowly killing her, and she does the thing that, that Wayne and I always call the hand waving thing, which is very reminiscent of what Ada does in Agents of Shield <laughs> yeah. as she's
1: constructing. Right. That's a cool little effect where she's moving things around with her mind. You know who
2: else does it is Sherlock when he's oh, when he's right. doing his mind palace. Right, exactly. Uh John Harlan Kim plays Ezekiel Jones, Master Thief Christian Kane who a lot of viewers may know from Leverage and he has a whole sub-genre called Caniacs on the internet. Really? That that follow him, yes. He plays Jacob Stone, who is an art and architecture scholar, and he's the team brawler, which is a nice mix there. John LaRochette from Night Court plays Jenkins, aka Sir Galahad, who is the caretaker of the library and its contents. So it's a wonderful cast. And one of the things that I always tell people about The Librarians, it's a show you can watch with your kids, almost no matter what age they are, that it's educational, it does not insult your intelligence, and yet kids can watch it and get something out of it.
1: Yeah, I agree. It's definitely got that fun flavor to it. It doesn't take itself super seriously, and it's... Uh, romping adventure a la Indiana Jones, if,
2: if I can make that parallel. Absolutely. So, what do we have here? The librarian is tasked with acquiring, housing, and protecting the world's magic to keep it out of the hands of the bad dudes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and we've got just tons of mythical items. Excalibur, who is personified, if that's even the right word, which it probably isn't, as a dog, as a pet to Flynn. And it's just really cute to watch. Last episode, we had an egg from the Loch Ness Monster. The Tree of Knowledge resides in the library. Wow. Not to mention hundreds of thousands of books, ancient texts, and other priceless relics. So, you know, that's the premise. Keep magic out of the hands of those who would abuse it. So as we move into season three... And the seasons are 10 episodes, which is nice and compact. Season two ended with the containment of Prospero, and we've got two new foes that have been introduced in season three. One is Apep, who is the Egyptian god of chaos, who wants to bring about the end of days by releasing pure evil into the world. And the other is DOSA, the Department of Statistical Anomalies, which is a government organization that's not really trying to do the same thing they're kind of new to the game and of course like most government agencies (laughs) uh, you know they're not operating on all cylinders at this point i do like that they actually have
1: a different big bad between seasons i mean the fact that they started fresh with season three with these new villains it really makes it feel contained by season
2: right and what they've done is ended each season with an episode that Basically is telling viewers that, you know, we don't know if we're coming back. So if we don't, this is kind of a satisfying ending. And if we do, as you said, we can just simply introduce a new big bad to the crew and everything will just keep going as it has. Right. Now, they've added Vanessa Williams to the cast as General Cynthia Rockwell, who's head of DOSA. Although we haven't really seen her very much, but what we have seen, she's awesome. Yeah, she's very commanding. She's got a presence about her. Right. Now, the idea was to bring Noah Wiley's character, Flynn Carson, into the show on a very limited basis. And and of course, since he was doing Falling Skies, he appeared in maybe two, at most three episodes in a season. But now that that show's ended, he's supposed to appear on a more regular basis. And, and word was he was supposed to appear in seven of ten episodes, direct three. So we'll see how that goes. He, he has been in a couple and has directed at least one. So Do you like that he's in it more? I do. Yes, I do. I do because it, it brings another dynamic to the group. And one of the things Wayne and I always talk about are the pairings within the context of an episode and the different relationships that are taking place as they get to know each other, they get to trust each other. Pairings are so key in any show, really. Now, the thing about DOSA that's great is that, okay, they're the government, so they're supposed to be the good guys, but this is magic we're talking about, and they don't really know what they're dealing with. So we're wondering how long it's going to take before DOSA wants to use magic in the name of national defense or whatever, Right? because it's only a matter of time. I mean, as you always say, there's been no point in history where a weapon was developed and then not used. Right, especially by the government. especially by the government. But perhaps the most consistent theme that's run through season three thus far examines the use of magic and its consequences. And they're running this idea through the character of Cassandra. And then Jacob Stone plays the role of the responsible member of the team who wants to do things the old-fashioned way. And he's constantly trying to pull Cassie back from using magic. And for her... On the one hand, it's all about her intellectual curiosity. She just can't contain herself. She's a good person. It's it's not that she wants to do anything nefarious, and it's not like Ezekiel Jones, who uses magic to dry his sweaters. <laughs> yeah. But,
1: but it is a slippery slope. I mean, once you start meddling with the things that you're trying to keep from
2: humanity, what makes you any better than them? Right. And in part, their youth is probably their greatest enemy. Right so all right so we've had four episodes so far librarians in the rise of chaos we introduce apep to the storyline as i mentioned earlier he wants to release pure evil into the world then he releases anubis in the second episode the original jackal and we have werewolves in the second episode at a military base up in canada and they actually Say it's in Canada. I believe it was in Alberta. And the other theme that they have been working with is Ezekiel Jones and the idea that he's just irresponsible and cares only about himself. And what we're coming to learn is that he just marches to the beat of a different drummer that that they don't understand or they're coming to understand slowly. He is dependable. It just doesn't seem as if he's dependable if that makes sense, yeah, well,
1: he's got a different moral code, yes, and so he seems like he's a bad guy, but he's actually just ethical in a different way. He's got his own code,
2: yeah see he's got in the fourth episode he's got all these gold coins he stole, and they realize they need to use them to determine a safe path and of course, every coin he throws might be destroyed, and finally he's got only one left and stone says all right. What do you love more, gold or Ezekiel Jones? Oh, And he looks at him, fair point, and he throws <laughs> the coin. Um, in the third episode, we've got frost giants. Hey. That's fun. <laughs> can you say Marvel and Thor? <laughs> there you go. Very Ragnarok. <laughs> right. And the, the cool thing there is that it explores the idea that while they were arguably minor gods, Eventually, people stopped believing in them, so they had to come up with another job, which was, of course, creating pain and suffering on the human race. And one of the nice questions they ask, Stone, what's your favorite natural disaster? <laughs> yeah, we did that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then the last episode that just appeared uh, Sunday night, Self-Fulfilling Prophecy, and we are introduced to the Oracle of Delphi, who has
1: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom.
2: made her way to Seattle. So a lot of history, a lot of literature, a lot of mythology. I mean, there's a lot of learning that goes on when you watch The Librarians. So, just the
1: first four episodes, you've got Egyptian mythology, Norse mythology, and Greek mythology. <laughs> yep.
2: So if you're looking for a show that's fun, that you can watch with your kids, you really should check out The Librarians. It's, it's a wonderful show. And then if you need a companion
1: podcast, just go to SciFiTVRewatch.com. There you go. (laughs) Exactly. So The Librarians is definitely uh, one of the shows that has a specific humor to it, too, which is rare in sci-fi. And you get it a little bit more with these fantasy shows. So it's good to see that as well as something a little bit different. Because the next show we're going to be talking about is anything but. Although there oddly is a little bit of humor, and we'll talk about where that comes from. But The Man in the High Castle Season 2 comes to Amazon Prime December 16th. So, just a few days after this podcast drops. But if you're not familiar with The Man in the High Castle, it's a TV show based on a Philip K. Dick novel in which an alternate history exists where the Axis powers won World War II and the United States is no more. It's a conquered country. And the Nazis control the eastern half of the country. That's known as the American Reich. And the Japanese control everything west of the Rockies and they call that the Pacific States. And then there's kind of a neutral zone in the middle. That is very key for the resistance that rises up. Now, this show takes place in the 1960s, so we're a little bit far from World War II where the conquering takes place. But we're not quite in modern times, which is important, not only from the costuming and things like that, but also the world events that are supposedly taking place in this world and our world. Because strangely, the resistance movement has been collecting these mysterious films which actually show versions of the world in which America was victorious. In other words, our world. And they also see some other ones. In the latter part of season one, they even see a film in which San Francisco has been destroyed by an atom bomb. So it almost seems like that film is telling the future of their own world. And these films become crucial to the resistance to give them hope, for one thing. But also, I feel like the powers in charge both the Japanese and the Nazis want them to suppress them or is there something maybe where they want to use them somehow for their
2: own purposes I'm not sure right well first off I mean that's the wonderful thing about alternate histories is that you really can go anywhere you want and you're fine with that but the other thing that you mentioned the film's And the fact that San Francisco was destroyed by an atomic bomb. But, you know, one of the issues that comes up is the veracity of these films. Yeah. Are they real or are they created? Are they propaganda? Exactly. Are they part of the resistance
1: literature, (laughs) you know, where they're staging them somehow? And of course, that turns out not to be the case. But who knows what the opinions of the Japanese and the Nazis are. Versus how the Resistance looks at them. Even the members of the Resistance who are retrieving these films, I don't know if they know entirely what they're about. They just know they're supposed to give them to some man who is just known as the man in the high
2: castle. And perhaps he's the only one that knows
1: what to do with them or what they mean.
2: And of course, that's a big gift that we get at the end of season one to find out who, in fact, the man in the high castle really is.
1: Right. And now I thought that was... True. Now, so you're saying Hitler.
2: Well, yeah,
1: I guess. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I thought the same thing too. And then you see all these articles coming out between seasons one and two. Oh, guess what? They've cast the man in the high castle. It's going to be Stephen Root. And I don't know if you know who Stephen Root is. I always think of him as the head of the radio station in news radio, that show back in the, gosh, what was it? Early 90s, maybe. So he was kind of a funny guy to me, but here he's being cast in a very serious role. The man in the high castle is actually someone in charge of the resistance. But you're right. I thought of it the same way. And didn't the novel address it that way as well? I, I believe
2: so. It's been a long time. I pulled the novel off the shelf last year. Yeah. I think I got about 10 pages in. and
1: Yeah, I thought the big reveal was that, that Hitler was the <laughs> man in the high castle, but I yeah. could be wrong. The main thing is that they've definitely addressed the story in a very different manner. And in fact, the story that Philip K. Dick wrote doesn't really flesh out a lot of the characters to an extreme degree. And in this TV show, they really have different personalities and motivations. And if you need a refresher, I certainly did. When I sat down to watch the advance episodes that were given to the press for season two, I'm like, okay, but I don't remember exactly what was going on. It's been over a year. So if you're listening to this podcast and you need a quick refresher juliana had let joe take her place on the boat to mexico she was going to escape with the grasshopper lies heavy film but instead she let him take her place on that boat and this has caused a huge rift uh in season 2 so that's going to change everything for juliana togomi who's my favorite character uh that's the minister of um Commerce, or I can't remember exactly. Do you remember?
2: I don't. I mean, I know who you're talking about. I don't remember. The
1: guy who, at the end of season one, has used meditation and his spirituality to cross over into our world. And he sees the headlines Cuban Missile Crisis and something about the book Lolita and things that we recognize from our own history. And I'll tell you, if season one had ended with Tagomi crossing over, that would have been a nice open ended conclusion. That we could just leave up to our imagination as viewers, right?
2: Well, so are we transitioning from alternate history to alternate universe? I feel like we are. But the weird thing about it is it's only Tagomi that
1: is aware that he's doing this. Because you think, gosh, if the resistance knew about this guy, they wouldn't need films. They could see the real thing or at least get field reports from him. And of course, the Japanese and Nazis would like to know too. But it's really interesting how Tagomi, who's very quiet, extremely sad man, <laughs> he just does not like the situation that the world is in. And of course, a big part of his storyline in season one was trying to avoid the Nazis taking over because the peace between the Japanese and the and the Germans is very tenuous.
2: Well, it's just Walter Bishop in different clothes. <laughs> There you go. I mean I mean he was the only one that knew about the other universe that you know when when it first occurred. Right. And he also was trying to avoid the collapse of the
1: Japanese occupation where the Nazis could take over practically the whole world. They're the only ones keeping them from doing that. And so there's this assassination of the crown prince which Frank Frank who was going to do in as a revenge tactic because Of course, his sister and her kids were killed in this horrible mistake that was made in season one, but a Nazi sniper beat him to it and killed the crown prince. Meanwhile, his friend Ed, good old sweet innocent Ed, who works with him at the gun replica factory, took the fall. And even though the Japanese intelligence knows that he didn't do it, they needed a scapegoat. In fact, Inspector Kido, who is a character I just love, he's super evil and awesome, Uh, was about to have to commit seppuku and at the last minute got a reprieve because they got Ed. So all these people were in really bad situations at the end, even the Nazi character played by uh, Rufus Sewell, a great, great character, Obergruppenführer John Smith, who does some pretty evil things, but at the same time is somehow, I don't know how they do it sympathetic when he is told he has to kill his son because he's defective. They find that he's got an illness, an incurable illness. And of course he can't do it. And he's, he's a family man at heart. And yet he's this high ranking Nazi. And it's just a really strange feeling to root for a guy like that.
2: (laughs) Awesome and evil, huh? I like it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's interesting too, because uh, just going over a couple of the new developments that I'll just tease for season two John Smith was already a character who was evil and yet we rooted for him. Season two, interestingly, Inspector Keto, who was not sympathetic, he was the bad guy for sure in season one. But he actually begins to be sympathetic in season two as he starts to deal with an aggressive general who is really making some questionable decisions, just kind of running roughshod around and throwing his weight around. And, of course, he's trying to track down Juliana because Juliana, of course, is on the run now, not only from The Powers That Be, but from The Resistance, who is just really upset that she let Joe get away with the film at the end of season one. So we're actually going to see Juliana in New York. And this is a very foreign land to her, very different from the San Francisco she grew up in, very different rules in the American Reich than what we would see in the... Pacific states because, of course, there's no black people, there's no Jewish people in American Reich, whereas they're a little bit more diverse (laughs) in San Francisco.
2: Right. And it's just a different culture in general as opposed to the Asian culture uh, that's, that's really ministering to the West Coast. Yeah.
1: In fact, I get the sense that in season one, Juliana kind of was revering some of the practices that come from the East and trying to learn their ways. So that's definitely going to change as she goes into a little bit more different culture. And Joe even is going to get away from his situation and meet a member of his family. That's going to change a lot for him. He's going to have to decide who he is and whether he wants to continue with working for the Nazis. And that whole evolution takes real interesting form in season two. And then of course, Frank, not only does he have to rescue Ed, from execution, but he also has to figure out a way to get in with the resistance. And what's interesting is that Frank was pulled into it because of Juliana reluctantly, but in season two, he's going to get a little taste for it with the resistance, much to Ed's chagrin. But of course, what I was mentioning earlier, the humor in this show, which is so rare, but so good comes from Childen, the antiques dealer who caters to the needs of Japanese bourgeoisie who like to collect Americana. He's got his little shop.
2: <laughs> All right. They're willing to pay more than it's worth. They don't really know what they're getting. I mean, they do, but they don't. Right. It's, which is why
1: he hires Frank to forge various items to make money. Exactly, And just so great, his sarcasm and and the relationship that he has where Frank just keeps getting children in deeper and deeper into trouble. And now that Ed is along for the ride, it just is very fun. And I love seeing those relationships uh, between those guys. So something to look forward to as you watch season two. Now, of course, we've got some new characters, and I just want to mention them as we wrap up. Callum Keith Rennie. Cylon. Yes, exactly. From Battlestar Galactica. Joins another actress who plays a Japanese American who definitely plays on those talents for the resistance have a really different flavor than what we got from our resistance fighters last season. They're really switching it up. It's really becoming a little bit more ruthless, a little bit more terrorist like, and I really like the direction they're taking with it. It definitely feels more like the resistance that you might see against the Cylons, for example. So, Definitely like the changes there. I mentioned Steven Root who plays the man in the high castle. And we even have uh, Joe's family member who I don't want to mention what the family member is, but the actor who plays that family member, really great addition to the cast. And so it's really going to take off from where season one left off. I was kind of worried. What are they going to do with it? How can they extend this? They've run out of source material from Philip K. Dick's novel. So where are they going to take it from here? But it really just stays true to the original wonderfulness that was in season one while changing up so many things that you almost think it wouldn't be possible to stay true to the original with so many changes for all these different characters. And yet they really did a good job if the first five episodes are any indication
2: yeah, I mean, we certainly ask the same questions about Westworld, and, and it all comes back to, do you have a good writing team? Obviously, Westworld does, and you know, based on the first five episodes of season two, it appears Man in the High Castle does as well.
1: Exactly, and there was a very definite reason why they gave the press the first five episodes, because, man, is there a bombshell at the end of episode five, <laughs> and you guys definitely have to stick it out through episode five to find out the big, 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 big reveal that they have at the halfway mark. So, yeah, 10 episodes, a nice viewing for your holiday season. But one show that kind of is a nice midpoint to those two shows, fun, serious, interesting, very different from the different things that are out there, and that's the show Travelers. And now, Dave, in a season that has tons of offerings in the time travel genre, This one is seriously unique, and it's quickly becoming one of my favorites of the fall season along with Westworld. I mean, it's just so good.
2: Right. I mean, it has the traditional story arc of a group of people coming back from a dystopic future to try to change things, to basically make it so that their bleak future never occurs. Now, we're never really exactly sure, at least so far, what they're going to do to make that happen. But there are some really cool twists that this show has that others don't. And I don't know how far we should go in and spoiling it at this point. Well, it's going to be revealed a little bit in the interview. So the concepts
1: will be explored, but basically this is not a bunch of guys hopping in a time machine to get back to the past. So We'll let the interview speak to that. But we will be discussing this show in depth in our January 2017 podcast. So what you need to do is you need to listen to this interview as a way to determine if this is the kind of show you want to watch. Hopefully it will persuade you. The show comes to Netflix December 23rd, oddly enough, the same day that they're dropping all of the episodes of season two of Sense8, which I think is very cruel because they don't want me to leave my television screen, apparently. And then... As we get to the January podcast, hopefully you will have watched all of the episodes and we can discuss it together because, man, this show is great. So we're talking here with Eric McCormack, who plays the lead male character, and Brad Wright, who's the executive producer, very much a producer emeritus among Canadian sci-fi as the creator of Stargate. So I got to talk to both of them last week. Dave, you missed out on this one, but you were interviewing the showrunner from Van Helsing, so it was a nice trade-off for you. <laughs> yeah, we had a good week. That's right. So let's go ahead and flash back to our interview with Eric McCormack and Brad Wright. Thanks so much for joining me today.
0: Not a problem. The coughing guy is Brad. Okay. And the uh, handsome guy even on the phone is Eric. <laughs>
1: All right. Well, let's start with uh, Brad. Now, Travelers is a show in which operatives from an apocalyptic future send their consciousness back in time to inhabit the bodies of people at the moment of their deaths and assume their lives to do their part to avoid the disaster in the future. Do you think that's a fair summary? And what else would you add to that description?
0: Uh, Just prior to the moment of their death. Okay. It's not as they die. It's before the blow that was going to kill them or whatever they get taken just before. That's an
1: important distinction. That's important because a lot of
0: people think it's as they die that it's happening and it's, from, and it's not the case.
3: Yeah. Just just before the car goes off the cliff, they become a traveler and stop the car from going off the cliff. So it's not like they've cheated death as much as they've cheated the thing that would have killed them.
1: And then I guess that's why that's such a painful experience, I guess, two minds at the same time. Uh,
0: the, the painful part is the brain being overwritten. The new travel essentially entirely supplants the original host. So the pain, I assume, comes from having your brain, your consciousness stripped out of your body, which we've decided is painful.
3: <laughs> All right. It looks cool that it's so painful. Yes, yes. But also, it it, it by completely, as Brad's saying, uh, not partially, but completely supplanting the, uh, the other person and their personality, what we're left with are people in a costume, essentially, tr- trying constantly to live that person's life, and with very limited, as it turns out, information. So it's their they're every day, their every moment in, in 2016 is an improv, really. They are constantly on their toes, and anything could give them away.
0: And really, honestly, that is where the show lives. The show is as much, if not more, about that, yeah. about trying to be those people in the 21st century, as it is about the grand big picture of changing missions and saving the world.
1: Right, like Trevor doing his homework and things like that. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. But Eric's character, FBI agent Grant McLaren, first encounters the travelers through their communications in the deep web. Now, does he specialize in cybercrime, and will this job continue to be instrumental to the team's operations?
3: That's probably a good, a good one for Brad. It certainly is an area of expertise that both he and his partner Are in, But in in the pilot, we do see that when he hands me certain codes, I say, I have no idea what I'm looking at. So it's certainly not, (laughs) he's not a decoder, but the deep web being a place to find some of the most heinous crimes going on.
0: Forbes actually says we just got sent a red flag. Right. So in this show, we, we skip over a lot of minutia and just get to the core of things going forward, especially. And so the underlying thing about that is somebody higher up at the FBI sent them this to follow it up. They're doing the legwork.
1: Now, the team, though, does have some distinct handicaps to deal with in the lives that they've assumed. And in one case, that handicap is very literal. Can you tell us about some of the difficulties that each of the characters has and what talents, what positive things they each bring?
3: Like I said, the the real fun of the show is the limited knowledge they have. They have the knowledge that came from reading a person's Facebook page from hundreds of years ago. Social media was probably the biggest uh, way that they had personal information, but as it turns out, that is limited and is sometimes completely inaccurate. In the case of of Marcy, who is from the future, a, a brilliant doctor, lands in the body of a girl who has been who has a a mental a learning handicap and quite quite a severe one. And as we'll learn later, of of a physical ailment that she has to spend most of the first season dealing with, sort of a, a doctor-heal-thyself situation. Um, it's actually the core of the
0: idea of, of that started the show. I mean, my, what started Travelers to begin with was, I was thinking of social media in terms of what we put out there. Is it who we really are, or is it a projection of what we want the world to see about ourselves? Right. And that evolved into the idea of Travelers.
3: And in the case of, uh, of Philip... Uh, he, we all knew, he knew, the director knows that uh, they're putting him into the body of someone who died of a heroin overdose. But what was reported, as we'll learn in a few episodes, is that it was a one-time thing. It was a, his first time ever trying it, and he did it too much. And, and instead, he learns that this kid's been doing it for a long time. And so he inherits, though, though he's supposed to be the most reliable one of the five of us in terms of the information that we need, he's a full-on heroin addict. So,
1: And what's his, what was Philip's profession? Uh, what's his specialty?
3: Philip is our historian. All, what we'll learn over the next few episodes is that all traveler teams have, have a leader, have a, have a doctor, and, and uh, the historian is someone who has memorized virtually everything about that, that particular city in that particular period of time that they're going to be doing that. Everything from who's going to win horse races to uh, how many people die on the 13th of July and how they die and where they die. So and, and uh, Riley, who plays it, is so so good at this. sometimes we'll, I'll throw a very specific question at him, and you just oh, you can almost see his brain computing. Despite <laughs> despite the heroine. <laughs> he uh, he f- goes through that fog and comes up with some incredible piece of information. So that is that's what his uh, his job is.
1: Now some of the travelers have pre-existing relationships with each other, but they also have to maintain their cover identities. Sometimes being married. Or having members of a family, are these relationships important for the mission? The assumed relationships, or do they get in the
3: way? Well, uh, Both. exactly. Both, yeah. They're, um, they're certainly as we as we learn. There's certainly uh, their relationship is military. They they are soldiers in a uh, in a war on the future, on the past, on changing changing the past to change the future. So they're they're expected to behave. There's a lot of protocols dictating. Their behavior but we will learn as early as the second episode that uh, a certain amount of fraternization has gone on yes. <laughs> and that they uh, and that's not that's not in the rules
1: uh, okay
3: yeah the, the interesting thing about the the five people that we become in the pilot uh, uh, the only thing that these people have in common is that they all died on the same day and in the same city, other than that they would not know each other, so we're already messing with with time by having these people who were supposed to have historically died continue to live but we also every, every time we bring the five of them together we are creating relationships that never would have existed so when when there is no mission we are expected very much not to hang with each other and every time we do we're messing with which protocol which protocol is the one where we're not going to hang five, I think that's, that's five resume resume I don't person's know. life yeah. <laughs> where's Ashley? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, there appear to be different cells also, all taking care of various potential disasters, and some of them have already been there a while before our team arrives, and they're all coordinated by a mysterious director. So do the travelers not necessarily know the big picture of what consequences the changes they're making will have?
0: In fact, uh, like cells, but calling them cells is, is, is exactly right. Because it's secretive and because they have a huge mission to undertake and, and can't really get caught, I mean, that's a huge, that's a huge, that would be a huge problem. They don't want to get discovered doing what they're doing. So they can't know the big picture. They can't know the whole thing. In the event that they were uh, compromised, they don't know. They just simply don't know. They only know the missions they're being told and what they need to do. And of course, the, the, the research they've done prior to them coming to the 21st, which is what we call the present, so that they can, you know, live those lives, that research, like, like, studying to be an fbi agent mm. for example
1: so reaching out to another cell is not that's protocol six you can't do that is that the that's right yeah, you're, you're not just it.
3: To, you're not supposed to connect and when so when that starts to happen in the second episode we we get a sense of oh okay it's not five people from the future it's a lot of people from the future and their relationships with each other as different cells are 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 also dictated and and supposed to be very very strict and i think the audience will get a real kick, As time goes on, by the time we get to episode sort of seven eight, we get a sense that how global this this could be. We don't, we don't have any idea how many cells are out there, uh, or in what cities they're. they're uh, but they're all they all have their own job and their own piece of the puzzle. So
1: uh, even though this team's first mission appears to go very smoothly, and I appreciated that actually, the fact that it wasn't just improvising from the very start, but then they do have to do quite a bit of improvisation for the ongoing mission. Would that be accurate after this first avoiding of an antimatter explosion?
0: Um, we actually get in trouble for improvising uh, from the director. It's not, it's frowned upon. But it's also what makes our team unique. And it's also what makes McLaren unique. He gets stuff done by breaking the rules to a certain extent, but also by wholly believing in the mission. So it's never super easy.
3: Let's put it that way. It's One of the things I like about how the show develops is that we are not, unlike, say, on a spaceship, sometimes you get a sense that everyone's got the same mission, the same drive. The five of us have come from this very bleak future uh, and, and into this kind of, for us, kind of amazing past uh, where sunshine and food and dogs, I mean, there's so many things that we clearly didn't have. And it gets very seductive. It's very hard sometimes for all, all five to focus on the mission. And it's, that's McLaren's job is to remind everybody, hey, this is great, but this is not why we're here. We're here to follow orders and uh, don't get too caught up in anything from from love to... Um, to just the, the relationships that we, that we have. The relationship that the parent has with his wife is something that sneaks up on him uh, because it's a woman he's never met before. And suddenly he has, uh, uh, being this woman's husband is a big piece of, of what his job is.
0: The series lives in those relationships more, much more really. And that, that's what I think makes this show unique. It's not Mission of the Week by any means. It's, it's about characters and their unique struggle in the 21st century.
1: Okay, well, thank you very much for talking us to today. And uh, we are very much looking forward to the premiere on December 23rd here in the States.
3: Thanks, Michael. Cool.
1: Thank you. Okay, there was a couple of tidbits in there. I was very happy that they were willing to share a little bit of, of the series that I hadn't seen. I had only seen, at the point of this interview, two episodes from the Canadian run. So they were able to tease a little bit even for me. But I hope that was persuasive for the audience out there as well.
2: Yeah. I mean, if you're a fan of science fiction, you have to give it a shot. If you are a fan of time travel, you absolutely must give it a shot. And I guarantee you, you're going to be around for at least a few episodes. And if you make it that far, I just don't understand how you could stop watching because, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, there are just, there's such a unique twist on what these people go through. And I'm not talking about how they get there. No, like Michael said, there is, that's only the first unique aspect. Right. And that's not even all that important to be quite <laughs> honest.
1: Yeah. It's the characters and what they go through and, and what they have to accomplish and what they have to do in our present. It's not yep. just about the mission. So lots of great stuff in the show and I can't wait to see how it. ends. I'm, I'm still only in the first half of the season myself and, can't wait for Netflix to give me the rest of them. <laughs> so some great shows this month and it's funny cuz this is the end of our first year as a podcast. Sci-Fi Fidelity has broadcast once per month for 12 months now. So next year we're next uh, month we're going to be starting fresh and yet we're actually still not repeating anything. Not counting if we did an interview and a discussion, we haven't actually discussed the same show twice. Yeah. That's the kind of uh, era we live in now with science fiction television. It's a great time to be a viewer. Well, that's going to be it for this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity. We hope you enjoyed our discussion this month. You can keep it going all month long by following us on social media or
2: on Facebook and Twitter
1: as Sci-Fi Fidelity.
2: And as Michael said, in January, we're going to be discussing Emerald City on NBC and Travelers on Netflix. But in the meantime, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you access it. Well, on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Plus, we do take suggestions for future
1: discussion topics. Just email us at fifidelity at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next year.